Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Klingons were toying with us. They were using a strategy known to the Klingon people as... you but that Klingon victory song has me pumped to talk about copyright law. Welcome to Radio Motherboard. I'm Jason Kevler and when I first heard about the story uh, I actually kind of just went of course it's happening because everything in it is totally crazy and earth is nuts. Maybe at the bar this week or something you may have heard that Paramount is suing the creators of Axanar, a Star Trek fan film. That's the clip that you heard at the top of this podcast for copyright infringement. The most interesting part of this suit is that the company is claiming ownership of the Klingon language, which is spoken by a race of humanoid warrior aliens in Star Trek. Naturally, an organization called the Language Creation Society is helping Axanar defend against the suit, and they filed one of the most amazing legal briefs ever, which stated, in Klingon, the quote, nobody can use mind property law to limit others' rights to freely use a language. Klingon is one of the most famous constructed languages, But it's not the only one. There's also J.R.R. Tolkien's Elvish, Navi from Avatar, Dothraki from Game of Thrones, as well as countless other languages that have no ties to fictional stories and are just simply made up. There's also a language called Esperanto, which was designed to be a universal second language for everyone on Earth. That goal has too been a fantasy, but the language has united some 2 million speakers and has a thriving community. Klingon, however, might be even more popular than Esperanto. It first appeared in the first Star Trek movie in 1979. A few years later, Paramount contracted linguist Mark Okrand to actually build out the language. The process went something like this. When it came time to make up the language... I had to make a couple of decisions. I had to decide what it's going to sound like. I had to decide what the grammar was going to be like. I had to make up a lot of words for the language. Uh, 
for the words, actually, that was the easy part because I only had to make up the dialogue that was in the film. The original intent was not to make up a full language that you could talk about anything in and carry on great philosophical discussions. The original intent was to make up lines of dialogue for Star Trek III. So if the word was in the film, in the script for the film, I would make up a word. And if the word wasn't in the script for the film, I probably didn't make up the word. But to start with the sounds, because I had to figure out what it's going to sound like, there was a couple of, of influences. The most important one was Star Trek The Motion Picture. We've never heard Klingon before. In the original series, they didn't speak Klingon. But in Star Trek The Motion Picture, at the beginning, there's real Klingon. There's real sentences with real subtitles. So that has to be incorporated into the language, too. Now, I came to, to Star Trek after that, because I started with Star Trek II. But the Klingon for Star Trek The Motion Picture, I found out afterwards, I didn't know this when I was first starting my work, was actually made up by, by James Doohan, the actor who plays Scotty. And it was spoken by Mark Leonard, who's the actor who normally plays uh, Sarek, Spock's father. But in this film, he was playing the, the, the captain, commander of the, the Klingon ship. So he was the first speaker of Klingon. So I did the best I could and listened to the lines over and over and over again and wrote them down. And those are real Klingon sentences. Those are, those are words. Those are uh, the translations, what they mean. Those are the sounds. If it was a three-syllable uh, Klingon sentence, I kind of imposed a structure on it. I had to decide, okay, it's three syllables. Is that one word or two words or three words? And I, just, I would just decide that's two words. The first two syllables are one word and the third one is another word or the other way around or just because, just because I had to start someplace. Klingon has come a long way since then. We have the Klingon Language Society, which publishes a linguistic journal. We have Klingon translations of Hamlet. This is to be or not to be. Talk, 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 we have Klingon music. We have Klingon wedding vows. Duolingo is launching a Klingon class on its app this summer. We have a rich cornucopia of Klingon stuff, all of which I knew absolutely nothing about until I found a real-life Klingon to explain it to me. Uh, the, the name is, my first name is Kur, Kur, which is the Klingon word for being. Um, and then the, the last, my last, for my Klingon last name, my Klingon house name is Lung which means a black loon. The loon is a lizard-like creature. Um, these are both kind of connected puns. I'm a big fan of Rowan Atkinson. I'm originally from England. And so I grew up watching shows like Mr. Bean and Black Adder and uh, uh, Young Ones and stuff like this. And so <clears throat> one day when I was trying to come up with a Klingon name, um, I was at work. A, uh, a friend happened to walk over to me who knew I was from England and was like, oh, hey, I got found this in a magazine. And it was a Mr. Bean mask. And so I was just like, oh, I wonder if there's a Klingon word to be. And there was. And it's cool. It's a nice Klingon sounding name, so I was like, oh, I'll just go ahead and take that. I got into Klingon years ago during the 90s. Um, I found a, a conversational Klingon, which is a cassette tape that came out. A friend gave that to me, and I uh, listened to it numerous times and tried to repeat all the different phrases and the sounds and the language that was on that. Uh, then I was given a copy of Power Klingon, and I did the same with another tape, and I did the same kind of thing with that. And then I found the, the Klingon dictionary, 
it was just like, oh wow, there's actually a dictionary, and I can I can sit down and read grammar rules and stuff like that. And um, I just studied the language off and on since then. Um, there's been multiple different books that have come out. We've got the the Klingon way and uh, Klingon for the Galactic Traveler that both expanded the language more. Um, I got involved with the Klingon Language Institute back in the late, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, when I moved to the U.S. And uh, I uh, see they have a, they had a, a, at the time they had a newsletter, a quarterly journal called Hawked, which was language science, linguistics, that would uh, delve into the language and uh, try to find, figure out new ways to say things and then try to figure out how to express things with the current rules. And it would also, they would talk to Dr. Okren, the guy who created the language, and ask him questions and try to get new words from him. And uh, they would do a lot of, like, explorative and, and like it was it was very academic in the exploration of Klingon that that the Hulk head was. So it, it was a great look at how much fun people can have with with a, a completely you know made up language that, that you know just prior to that had just been a TV show. So I think they really brought the the, the language alive. They brought it to life um, and pulled it out of this little like book. And made it into a real thing, and that was, you know, decades ago. And I think it's kind of a shame that it kind of has, it kind of went into hiding for a while. But now that there's been a resurgence in Star Trek, there's also been a, a resurgence in interest with with the Klingon language, which is, which is great because now we've got new people speaking it and, and Twitter talking about it all day long, which is fantastic. I just look at my Twitter feed. I um, I will pretty much use Klingon whenever I get a chance. Um, I I tend at my home, my girlfriend doesn't really speak Klingon much, but I'll you know I'll use it around the house. I'll talk to my pets using it. Um, I will when we go there's a, a yearly conference that the KLI hand holds uh, has it's called the uh, Kappa, and it's a meeting, grand meeting. And uh, there, people will use Klingon for everything. You know, there are some people who will take the vow and then they will just speak Klingon for five days. Um, we go out to a restaurant, they speak Klingon. It, they go, we go to a, a movie or something, they'll speak Klingon the whole time. They'll speak Klingon to the hotel people, they'll speak Klingon to it. You know, if someone random walks up to them and starts talking to them, they'll speak Klingon to them. And you know, you can use it just as a regular day-to-day language. There's some things that we can't talk about because we don't have those specialized jargon that, that those fields use. But for most day-to-day stuff, you know, we can we can converse. I I run a, a group on Facebook called Learn Klingon, um, and they like these conversations in Klingon going on in there on a daily basis. Yeah, I don't want to necessarily put you on the spot, but uh, can you speak a little bit of Klingon um, or maybe teach us a little bit? Um, like, I don't know, hi, my name is, or um, how are you today, something like that? I can do uh, my name is, which I can teach you how to say that. Uh, the other thing with the words hi and how are you today, Klingons wouldn't say those kind of things. Um, the, the Klingons are very direct, straightforward people. 
when they meet each other, they just talk about whatever they need to talk about. And then, uh, uh, and they just go about the business kind of thing. They don't really, they, they don't have a lot of those pleasantries that we have. They don't, hi, how are you doing? Oh, you're good, that's great. You know, the, the kind of conversation that you have in the morning with half your co-workers, you really don't care in the long run, you know, because 20 seconds later you're off doing whatever it was that you were walking down the hallway to do in the first place kind of thing. And so Klingons don't do that. They'll just, they won't waste the time in the breath. They'll just keep on going. But we can do the, uh, my name is, um, there's, there's a couple different ways, but uh, uh, the common way to do it is to say whatever your name is, so in my instance, Kuluch, and then Och Pongwajet. So Kuluch Och Pongwajet is, my name is Kuluch. Um, for you, that would be Jason Och Pongwajet. So the Och means it, and the Pongwaj means my name. Okay, so um, that was really interesting how there's not, like, sort of these pleasantries in Klingon. Does that mean... Um like, are there other other types of things? I would assume that, I guess, like, the personality types of the Klingon race would inform how the language is formed and, like, how what, what you're able to express in it then. Are there, are there other, like, pretty prominent instances of, of not having those sorts of words for certain feelings that Klingons may not feel or bother with? In Klingons, you can't ask somebody, uh, which drink would you like? You can't say that. Instead, you have to give them a command and say, identify the drink you want or pick a drink. Uh, the same with, like, food. They don't say, hey, are you hungry? Would you like to eat? You just say, eat. Start eating. Um, you know, you, you're short. You cook. Drink. Right, yeah. Uh, th- this lawsuit, I would imagine, is uh, probably quite concerning, but also probably has brought a lot of attention to the language, right? Uh, it's brought a lot of attention to the language. I'm, I'm really not worried about the lawsuit. Um, it's, for, for as long as Klingon has existed, and we've been speaking it, there's always been this, this kind of thought in the back of our mind, you know, does CBS Paramount, for most of the time, do they own this language? Can they control what we do with it? And for... For most of it, we've never seen them ever try to do anything. They've never tried to control it. They've never tried to limit it. Um, they gave the KLI a license to, to produce stuff in Klingon um, and gave them basically free reign to do what, you know, publish whatever they want and do as they please. And uh, one of the first books they published, Hamlet, um, got picked up then by Pocketbooks and republished several years later. So that was kind of an affirmation of, of the work that the KLI is doing, they're not going to get, you know, conked over the head by a, a lawsuit or something like that. Uh, but as, as a private individual, there's always been some concern, of, can I write something in Klingon and then publish it? Or, you know, and uh, back, the, there was a book called The Secret Fighting Arts of the Warrior Race, created by a guy named Chet Brown out in California. And he created a battler training manual. Um, and it was full of Klingon language stuff and pictures of Klingons, like him dressed as a Klingon with a battler, teaching him step-by-step how to wield this weapon, uh, how to do it like a whole cutter. And uh, Paramount came along and said, nope, you can't do that, and shut him down. 
And so the, there was a concern there. People have always never been quite sure why the book was killed. Was it killed because it has pictures of Klingons in it? Was it killed because it has it connects Star Trek to fighting with swords, dangerous weapons, and, and Paramount's like, hey, we don't want that? Or was it because of the, the, the use of language? There was lots of Klingon language used throughout the book. So there's always been kind of that, the specter, that that occurrence, and people have always been kind of, you know, they, they haven't published that many books in Klingon, but there have been books that have been published independently of Paramount, CBS, that are in Klingon, that they haven't been, you know, the, the publishers of those have not been shut down. And these are books that you, you, you know, they, there's the, the Puff Buck, which was produced in Europe, it was translated by Mark Oakland but it wasn't done by CBS or Paramount, and it's all about Klingons and Kayla, but it doesn't really have much in the way of pictures, it's just English text and Klingon text, and so it occasionally mentions the word Klingon, but that's really kind of about it. So that's, that's kind of about as far as people have been, have pushed the boundary. Um, and so, there, you know, there is some, if, if it turns out that, Paramount does not, or CBS does not own or control Klingon and cannot and can't stop people from doing whatever they want to do in it. And that would be a wonderful thing for, for someone like me because I would go, okay, I can publish books in Klingon all day long and know that I'm not going to get sued for it. However, if it comes out and it says Paramount does control this language and it all belongs to them, I just go, oh, so it's really business as usual because that's kind of the... The, the cautionary viewpoint that the, the Klingon-speaking community has taken, because we don't want to run the risk of, of being... Um, you know, I don't assume that people are going to just stop speaking Klingon because a judge says that you shouldn't, or that, it, you know, CBS Paramount owns it. Because even if, even if uh, CBS Paramount does own it, the counter-argument as a private individual is to say, well, you published a book that teaches people how to speak it. The implication there is you want me to speak it. Otherwise, you wouldn't have made this book. The Language Creation Society, as I mentioned up top, is the group that filed the legal brief defending Klingon. It worries that this Klingon culture could be threatened if Paramount wins its case against Axnar. I called up Sai, founder of the society, to learn why constructed languages must be saved. My name is Sai. Uh, that's actually my full, full name. Uh, the Language Creation Creation Society is a group that I founded uh, in around 2007, uh, stemming from a class I was teaching at Berkeley, uh, whose mission is to promote the art and craft of language creation. So, um, also known as constructed languages or conlangs. So, we're people who make languages, um, and the LCS helps mainly by doing things like running a conference every couple of years, uh, having publications things like that. There's a couple of things that you can do in conlangs that you can't quite do in natural languages or natlangs. Um, so for one, you can make the language so that it expresses your particular aesthetic. Um, so you, obviously you can express yourself poetically in a given language, but if you wanted to reshape the language itself, you have to be a conlanger. Um, there's also things that people have tried to do, for example, with auxiliary languages like Esperanto, uh, to try to make it more accessible for everybody to learn easily. There's languages like Lozban, which try to um, be more logical and more precise 
Uh, there's languages um, like Ithquil or my own languages uh, that try to push the boundaries of what language is capable of doing um, in various ways. And those sort of are all over the place. Um, so you, you, you can do so much within a language, but if you get to craft the language itself, uh, it's, it's a whole different ball. Um, the legal side, the discussions about how IP law might affect conlangs have been going on on the list for years and years now. And so several months ago, we actually talked with Denton's uh, to get a formal legal memorandum to brief it, and that's available on our website. And I gave a talk about that on our last conference. Um, but no, we didn't expect a court case to come up. The only court case that has ever come up on Conlang's was Lojban, which was mainly a trademark dispute. Um, but uh, that doesn't mean we're going to shirk from it. Um, the, the purpose of the LCS is sort of to do things that would be very difficult for an individual to do um, that we can do collectively, like conferences or like uh, getting Mark to file an amicus brief. Um, and personally, I have a lot of interest in the law, so um, I'm very much looking forward to see how this plays out. Right, right. So um, when when someone starts crafting a language, at what point does it become a language uh, as opposed to just like a set of interesting vocabulary words or grammar? Like, do you have to be able to express every thought and feeling in a language before it becomes one? Or I would imagine there's some lower threshold than that. Well, that's actually a really tricky question. So linguists have um, a bunch of criteria that are traditionally used for what is a language as opposed to, for instance, uh, just a, an encoding method or a signaling method. So for instance, languages are capable of um, discussing any given subject. Uh, languages typically have arbitrariness, so they're not um, just miming, for instance, as opposed to sign language. Uh, it's not just pictographs as opposed to um, ideographic languages, et cetera. Uh, and there's various other more technical things like embedding. Um, but there's not really a hard cutoff. If you can express yourself in it, then it's serving as language. Um, whether it's a separate language from what you might be basing it on, that's a hard question. <laughs> um, whether it's full enough to use, that's also a very hard question. Tokifono only has, I think, 100 words or something like that, maybe 200, uh, but people have full conversations in it. Uh, so there's certainly no minimum number of words you have to have in the vocabulary. If you take a look on YouTube, there's music videos in Klingon, there's translations of Hamlet in Klingon, etc. Um, and all these things are creative works in their own right that nobody should have to go to Paramount and ask permission to do. And Paramount should not get to own just because they commissioned the creation of the language. Um, they get to own, of course, the Klingon dictionary, uh, which uh, I think they, they have a, a joint uh, deal with Mark Ogrand, who, who wrote the book. Uh, but that's a book that describes language. They get to own 
all the dialogue that's in Klingon in all the various uh, scripts of the episodes, for sure, just like they own the English dialogue. But they don't get to own anything that somebody might later write in Klingon. That is going too far. Right, and that's because, I mean, they don't really have any sort of creative control over what someone might do with that language. Like, if someone decides to write a novel in Klingon, it seems sort of beyond the scope of inventing that language that they could then say, you know, you owe us royalties or we own the novel that you wrote, I suppose. Right. Um, you know, it, one of the fundamental things about language, which is distinct from other kinds of art, is that it is useful as well as being creative. Now, we would certainly not deny that it is a lot of work to make a conling, uh, that you can pay people to make a conling. In fact, uh, we do that, uh, jobs.conlang.org. Um, or that it is you know, a, a very personal thing for very many people. But you can... Take the knowledge that you have of somebody others, somebody else's conlang and write your own original works in that. Copyright is not the right tool for that job. You can make an argument in theory for patent law, but it's very unlikely that you have a truly original way of, um, of fundamentally doing language, of making language in the first place, so it's not likely. And there's trademark stuff that you could you could talk about, but Paramount isn't asserting a trademark claim here. So I would imagine, I mean, when we see other sort of copyright claims, um, we often see this sort of like Streisand effect where a <laughs> lot more people start, uh, you know, pirating said item. Um, I would imagine that like learning Klingon is not particularly easy but have you seen like a lot more interest in the language like i i mean obviously everyone kind of has heard of klingon even if you're not a star Wars, star trek oh my god i'm gonna <laughs> a, star, a star trek geek um yeah obviously i i'm not but i find this extremely interesting um have you seen like a, a huge upswell in the amount of people who are interested in the language itself well, it's too early to say, of course. Uh, we only filed uh, the amicus brief a few days ago. Um, but the level of attention that uh, the brief has gotten has been pretty uh, astounding. Um, if, if you go to conlang.org slash Axnar at the bottom, there's a list of press coverage we've gotten. It's all over. Um, and I think that what we've seen previously with, for instance, Dothraki, or um, with Erica Okren's book uh, in the Land of Invented Languages, or um, with other things that have sort of brought the notion that you can make a conlang or that there are conlangs out there that are really interesting um, to, to public consciousness is we did see upswells in uh, people joining the conlang community or people joining communities for specific languages like Klingon or Dothraki or Navi or uh, Quenya or whatnot. Um, and I would be surprised if the attention that this gets does not have a similar effect for the Klingon uh, speaking community. 
Um, do we have any sense of how large the, the Conlang community is in general? Well, the, I guess the, maybe excluding Esperanto. I, I don't know if I should or shouldn't, uh, you know, kind of put Esperanto in this. Esperanto was an attempt to build an auxiliary, like, right. universal language, um, and there are several million speakers of it worldwide. Um, so but it's not very, tied to any... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I guess you could say there's sort of three different categories of community there. There's communities tied to languages whose point is to spread themselves like auxiliary languages and like Esperanto, which have actively tried to recruit, as it were, um, because that's kind of the point of the language is to be an intermediate language for people to communicate with. Uh, there's languages that um, are tied to some sort of... Um, I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Some sort of world that is independently popular for some reason, uh, generally because it's a movie or TV show or a book. Um, like Dothraki and Quenya from Tolkien's uh, books, or Navi from Avatar, uh, or Klingon from Star Trek, etc. Um, so those get attention sort of as a, as a byproduct of fans of the of the underlying work. Um, and then there's conlangers, like those of us who actually make languages. Um, I would estimate that those of us who make languages, there's probably on the order of a few thousand um, in the world. Um, there's probably about one or 2,000 on the mailing lists and um, bulletin boards and so forth uh, that are active. But then there's, of course, a lot of others who don't really connect to the community, who see it as this particularly geeky hobby that they might be embarrassed to tell anyone that they actually engage in. Um, so it's hard to really know how many there are out there. It, it, it would be a, a shame if, if conlingers uh, just, or people studying languages or people just interested in, in academic work on this were stifled by the potential threat of a lawsuit or a takedown letter. Um, and we hope that we can set some precedent that says, well, no, you can't use that blunt of a tool to control a conlang. All right, I'm going to let you go right now, except one final question. How sure. much Klingon do you know, and can you share it with us? <laughs> I know basically two words. <laughs> so I'll just end with kapla. <laughs> what does that mean? Success. All right, well, hope for cluck cluck for you guys. <laughs> there is, of course, one final wrinkle here, one thing that we finally need to talk about. Do the Klingons actually have a chance against the almighty company that created them? What does the law actually look like? And because this is the real world where everything is weirder than it first appears, 
one of the most important and most controversial copyright cases in the tech world over the last few years, Oracle v. Google, could come into play here. If the Klingons win, what does it mean for tech? I called up Sarah Zhang, motherboard contributing editor and copyright genius, to run through the specifics of the case. Yeah, let's talk about Klingon. What um, what do you make of this whole situation? Like, when you well, first saw it, what what did you think? Well, the funny thing is that, like, so you've, you've got this fan film. Should we run through the, the the basic facts of the case? Yes, we should do that. Yeah. So there's like a Kickstarter for a fan film, like a Star Trek fan film that raised over a million dollars. Um, the people behind it are are professional, so it's going to be like a professional quality um, movie. And like, I think there's one guy who actually was like did work on set for um, a Star Trek series as well. So like, this is going to be like really cool for fans to see. Um, the plot has like nothing to do with like actual characters that have appeared on screen. Um, it's set 21 years before uh, like, you know, the Kirk and Spock um, sort of storyline and um in the original series and it's based off of a flyby line in a single episode where um, I believe Captain Kirk, like, or someone talking to Captain Kirk mentions, Oh, the battle at Axanar. And then based on that, they've built out an entire storyline. That's like not in the actual series, like around Axanar and they've built these new characters and it's actually kind of cool. Um, but in doing so they've, in doing making the film, they're like going to have people wearing costumes and like they're going to have Vulcans and they're going to use um, the Klingon language. Like this is all authenticity that fans demand. Right. But on the other hand, they're, they don't have um, known, well-known characters. Um, they have like a guy who, whose name is mentioned in one episode briefly. Right. And then they have, um, they have like the universe, they have like Vulcans with like their ears and stuff like that. And they have the Klingon language, they have these costumes. Um, and there's three rights holders to Star Trek and, uh, Paramount is super pissed about this fan film because they, you know, they're pretty tolerant of fan activity, but this is going to be a high quality production that's, has a lot, a lot of money behind it. And it actually just, this looks really scary to them. Like what if the future is all of these fan films that don't pay licensing rights to them that look really, really good that can compete with, um, official stuff. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I watched the trailer of this and I was astounded at how like good it looks. I mean, they put out a 20 minute sort of preview film, I yeah, guess, um, reason- to, for the Kickstarter. Yeah, there's a reason why they they were able to get so much money because people loved it. And um, but sort of this copyright lawsuit is incredible because, you know, the, the plot is like so far away and the characters are so far away from the actual series. Right. And, and so much of what they're doing is based around, um, you know, cosplay and like the Klingon language. These are all things that fans all do and they, and they love and it's like integral to sort of the fan community and, um, and they, the fans feel like ownership in these things. Right. 
And Paramount is now suing over these things because there aren't other allegedly copyrightable elements that they can really point to. So um, the fans are like, okay, you're going to sue us, point to the exact things that you're infringing or you say that we're infringing. And so there's like, you know, this very like specific list and the fans have like sort of picked that apart and they're like, well, you know, you can't really copyright just a gold shirt. And sure, we're, these Vulcans look the same as the Vulcans in the original series, but the individual elements you've picked out, like pointed ears, the name Vulcan, you can't just go and copyright those. Like that's not a thing. Like elves have pointed ears. Um, the word Vulcan isn't copyrighted. Uh, right, it's a Roman the, god. Yeah, yeah. It's and um, and so they're they're pointing to all of these things, and then and then the really interesting thing is the Klingon language. Right, um, and that, that's what I've kind of spent um, most of the time. That's gotten the most press, but um, that's I guess what we want to focus on here. I think. Um, yeah. But I, I am curious. Like, do you think that um, Paramount has a case? Um, on some of these other things, because it seems like, you know, at first glance, oh, they're making a fan film. Of course, this is copyright infringement. Like, of course you can't do it. But the, as you kind of just pointed out, it's not really that cut and dry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it depends. I think, um, I I think all of this stuff is up for debate, right? Like I can see things going like both ways. Um, so it's, it's really interesting. Uh, I do think like rightfully a lot of the media attention is on the Klingon aspects because that's really, really interesting. Um, I I'm really like, I've, it's not something that gets litigated very often and it's weird. And, um, it, it does feel like a bit much for this one studio to claim that they have copyright in Klingon. Like it's a it, Klingon, the Klingon language has a life of its own. There's like a Klingon, um, language Institute, I think. And, uh, there's Klingon dictionaries. And at this point there's, uh, a, um, and a nonprofit called the language creation society has, has gone and filed an amicus in this case as well. Like there's, you know, people love Klingon. They've gone out of their way to learn how to speak it. And it's like kind of offensive to them that someone's claiming rights in it. Right. Yeah. I talked to someone who's really involved in the Klingon language society yesterday and he's, he doesn't seem too worried about it because he just kind of goes about, he, he speaks Klingon like in his day-to-day life and he says he's not going to stop no matter what. But, um, he kind of said, you know, it doesn't make sense to him because, uh, Paramount put out these dictionaries. They wanted people to learn the language. It's obviously a good thing that this whole culture has popped up around it. Um, you know, they basically like taught people how to do it. And now they're saying, well, you can't use it unless we tell you, you know, the correct way to use it. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense at all. Right. So um, legally speaking, I mean, we have a couple other cases to, to look at. I think the one that everyone has been rightfully calling attention to is the massive Oracle versus Google um, case. Can you take us through that and why it's relevant here? So in Oracle v. Google, um, one of the things that was at issue were uh, 
was the Java API. And the idea behind that, and, and I guess um, the way that I would describe an API is it's kind of like a dictionary. Um, it, it lets, um, common APIs are, are kind of like proverbs. This is, this isn't an analogy I've come up with myself. Um, but it, it's, it's kind of shorthand, um, programmers. If, if like the Android platform accesses the Java APIs, then it, it helps programmers to code in Java and to, and to work with the Google platform. And so the idea is kind of like an API as a language or a dictionary. Um, these are not on point descriptions, but you can see why people are now referring to Oracle v. Google, like comparing that to this case, because it's, you know, it's pretty close. This is the closest sort of thing we've got. And in fact, you have like this article from 2015 where um, Charles Dwan at Public Knowledge do, does say that if Oracle v. Google is allowed to stand, then uh, then that means that Klingon would be copyrighted and and like a studio could stop Klingon speakers from speaking Klingon and that it doesn't make any sense. And you, you sort of have a similar thing here where it's like, Java is useful when lots of people can write in it, right? Like it's, it, it's about interoperability. There's like, there's a level here. The more common it is, the more free it is, um, the more useful it is because that's how language works. And that's the same with Klingon, right? The Klingon, it, they're putting out dictionaries so that people can learn to speak it. It's, it's being encouraged to be free because a language is, only has really as much utility as how free it is. And that's actually important in copyright law. There's um, this doctrine of interoperability. And there's sort of, uh, and, and it goes to a really fundamental concept in copyright law, which is that if there's only one way of expressing something, that it, it should, um, it's not, copyrightable. Mm -hmm. This is known as the merger doctrine. And so from there you build that out and you go, Hey, some things can't be copyrightable for interoperability purposes, because if you make them copyrightable, then things can't be interoperable. Like in order to build out, in order to encourage people to build out larger and larger systems, you can't enclose these individual components um, because otherwise uh, you have, you know, computer systems that can't talk to each other. You have programmers that are, um, that can't program because like sort of this basic constitutive element of, um, the things that they do is sort of enclosed. And that goes to language. It goes to programming language. Um, and like this, this doctrine is kind of like, it's a little weird. And Oracle v. Google is a little weird. And this case is certainly really weird by proxy, the Klingon case. Um, and so even though this case is goofy, like the Klingon case, like there, it, it's addressing like a really weird aspect of copyright law, something that's like not really settled. 
Right. So where where does this doctrine come from? I mean, is it just something like are there court cases that support it? Um, I've seen one that's been brought up a few times is Baker versus Selden, which is back from 1879, and that involved like a bookkeeping system. A bookkeeping system, yeah. And here that's like the bookkeeping system, um, that's a Supreme Court case, and it's like super basic, and that's Baker v. Selden gets cited a lot in um, copyrightability of software cases. And... Uh, in that case, there's sort of this idea that like a, a bookkeeping system is, is like so functional that it can't um, be copyrightable because you can't copyright useful items. So you can't copyright like a chair. Like you can copyright sort of all the decorative elements of a chair. So like say you have like a chair that's shaped like a swan um, and you can sort of copyright all those beautiful elements because that's creative, but sort of just the fact that it's a chair doesn't, can't be copyrighted. So if someone makes a chair um, that looks like a cat or just another chair, you can't be like, oh, you infringed on my swan chair um, because you're, the other person is only copywriting the useful elements, like the utilitarian elements, and those aren't copyrightable. So, right. So on its face, though, I mean, it would th- it would seem to reason that language is one of the most useful things mankind has ever created. And, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah so, <laughs> and you could really say that, and like, and um, it's, and that's like another basic copyright doctrine, and one that comes up a lot in the in the software copyright context, um, and it is related to the merger doctrine as well. And yeah, like it's, it's definitely the case that you can, you can say that. And it, it, it does seem absurd that you can copyright a language, right? And copyright law affects, like it it reflects that it is, it's really like hard to make a case that you can because exactly because it's absurd. Like the, here the law actually reflects reality instead of being crazy and weird. Right. So I suppose, um, you know, copyright law is very weird, as we talked about on an earlier podcast. Um, But people sue other people for all sorts of things. So the fact that Paramount, you know, is attempting to bring this case isn't necessarily um, that notable other than the fact that it's very weird. Um, So, do I mean, do you think that a judge is just going to look at this and and toss it out? Um, Because I guess what, what we've seen in Oracle versus Google is that maybe maybe they'll take it seriously i mean that that case is still sort of ongoing and the supreme like oracle won that case as it stands sort of yeah yeah so like um the case that they brought was they had all these patent claims and then they had like a one copyright claim and all the patent claims dropped out because the case was um kind of bs and uh, and then they lost on the copyright claim in the lower court and the appeals court reversed, and then the Supreme Court declined to take it. So the appeals court's judgment still stands, and now it's going back to district court for uh, um, another trial on the copyright claim. And so it's like, it's possible that Google will still win in the end, but Oracle won on sort of the issue that's at stake here is like, is it possible to copyright an API? Um, 
and there is no Supreme Court decision on it. So technically it's not like settled law. And it's also like the court that made the decision um, is very limited in jurisdiction. So there's a whole other legal practice thing there. Um, like it's, it's not as though a huge circuit like the Ninth Circuit uh, carved out this rule so that it, it applies to all of California or whatever. So it, it's, again, one, like, once again, like very much unsettled law. Um, in this case, in the Klingon case, it's interesting because, um, like you've pointed out, it's a fan film. It looks really similar to Star Trek. It looks really good. Uh, we can like talk about like, this is, you know, um, classic fan fiction. This is like fan activity. But when you look at the trailer, it's, it looks amazing, right? It, it stops looking sort of like, um, a, an amateur enterprise. And when you've got that, like your feelings kind of change, right? Like this isn't just people cosplaying at a convention. Like this, if this takes off, like we could see a rash of, other fan films at this level of quality and maybe that's a good thing and maybe that's something that our copyright system should encourage and i'm i'm of the opinion that that's the case but it like i can see why other people would feel otherwise right like that that doesn't quite sit right um with other people right so that's that's really interesting um what what is the state of like fan fiction in the copyright world like in copyright it's law super i mean weird it's super weird and it's like not good to be honest um so there's actually a case going up right now in front of the supreme court about um cheerleader uniforms and the, the copyrightable elements of cheerleader uniforms and that could that actually um could affect cosplay um there was a second circuit case about uh like a harry potter compendium sort of it just had all these facts from the harry potter universe and people could like it was like a dictionary for harry potter and jk rowling sued that book um and, and it the book quoted extensively from the harry potter series because that's like kind of what you do right like it's it's a resource guide um right. and rowling won in that case um so you don't have like a lot of fan fiction cases. Uh, there are, you know, instances in which um, people will sue and they'll just settle out. So there's a bunch of interesting cases that could have happened, but because they settle out, we don't have much case law. Um, another interesting case that's relevant, it would be the, the Sherlock Holmes case. Um, the sort of estate of uh, Arthur Conan Doyle um, sued these authors who refused to pay licensing fees for writing sort of Sherlock Holmes uh, tribute stories. And the authors were like, look, like it's been this many years. The character of Sherlock Holmes is now in the public domain and we should be able to write these stories without paying licensing fees. And um, the estate went to bat over this and they like pointed to these really like late um, stories written by Doyle that are less well known. Um, they aren't sort of the classic stories that like, you know, the, the TV show Sherlock um, that the BBC does like those 
those episodes are based off of like the older stories because the older stories are, are classics and those are out of copyright. Um, but the, the much later stories are still in copyright and, um, the state sort of argued that, oh, like you can't really separate the character of Sherlock Holmes, um, out of all of these, like the entire body of these works. So just because these later works that aren't very well known are still in copyright, um, the entire character is still in copyright and you can't, uh, you can't write fan fiction essentially of Sherlock Holmes. And, um, in the end, the, the fans won. Sherlock Holmes is now in the public domain, uh, to some extent. And that's really cool. Right. Yeah. It's, it's so hard to keep everything, um, kind of straight. Uh, does, does it matter if, um, like the quality of the fan fiction. I mean, we've kind of brought that up a few times with this, with the Klingon, the Axnar film. Um, You know, this is a very high quality thing. There's a lot of funding behind it. Um, You know, it it doesn't matter in the law, but I I do think that like, you know, a a lot of these cases depend on um, gut feelings, right? Like if, if things are sort of unclear in the law, you're, you're going to look to your gut to try and, push you in one direction or the other. And I do, I like, I do think that's, it's relevant in that sense, but under the law, no, it doesn't really matter. Right. Right. So if, um, if Paramount wins this case, like what, what sort of overarching things might we be looking at? Like, what do you think the impact on the Klingon language will be? Well, I actually, um, like the guy you talked to said, like it's, I don't think it's going to change what Klingon speakers do from the day to day. Um, I think it might sort of affect fan activities like um, other people compiling their own dictionaries or um, offering Klingon classes. Uh, I, I doubt that the studios will go after them, but there's always a chance. Um it's, I think that the worst, the biggest sort of impact that this case can have is like the relationship between the Star Trek franchise and its fans. Like, it's just kind of, it's an aggressive move. And at this point, there's all these elements about Star Trek that right now Paramount is claiming copyright in that the fans feel ownership of. Like, people go to conventions dressed as Klingons and speak Klingon. Um, they wear these gold shirts um, and, and they, they feel robust ownership of these things, uh, rather than, um, these three studios that own, own the rights in Star Trek, like they feel invested and, and they right to feel invested because the fans made Star Trek what Star Trek is without this kind of activity, Star Trek would not be as big of a deal as it is. It would not have the kind of lasting appeal that it does. Right. And the fans overall have been like pretty respectful of Paramount. Um, I was speaking to the guy from the Klingon Society, and he said that this has actually come up one other time, um, in, and it just sort of went away because the person decided not to release the book he was working on. But basically a Klingon decided to write a sword fighting guide in Klingon and then sell it and Paramount threatened to sue him. Um, and he basically said, okay, I won't do it. And, um, you know, this has been a topic that's come up 
on their listservs for like quite some time, the possibility that maybe Paramount does own the language because they created it. So let's not do commercial enterprises with it. Um, so as to like, so as to not get sued. I mean, no one wants to get sued. So um, I, this is something that's been very much like in their sort of uh, purview for a few years now. Yeah, um, and I, I'm not sure how much of that is like, you know, feeling like Paramount has moral authority here as opposed to just more lawyers. Um, but in my experience, fans tend to be, you know, respectful of the original work because, or, or whoever owns the original work because that's, you know, um, they're fans. But on the other hand, like when you're looking at like a studio that owns Star Trek, as opposed to like Gene Roddenberry, like that, I think that sort of changes how you feel about things. Right, right, right. So um, is there anything that we should, uh, that we've missed? Uh, I think that's it. We hit every single thing. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've been on the phone for a while, so I think. Yeah, no, no, it's been, Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing it. Um, it sounds like you are a Star Trek fan. I am not. Um, I, I'm not. I need to I'm actually oh. not. I'm like super not. <laughs> I'm a Star okay, Trek I'm fan. sorry for accusing you. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Like I, I, I just like, you know, it's kind of incredible that there's like this huge thing, right? Like Star Wars um, is great. I love Star Wars. When I was a kid, I like had a bunch of Star Wars books um, and whatnot. But it's, I gotta say, like, the Star Trek franchise is, like, really incredible, right? Like, it's, they've got, like, just a lot of stuff, and people are really invested in it. Um, And this is not to say that Star Wars fans aren't rabid, but, like, people aren't going around speaking in constructed language. Right, a very, very difficult one as well. Like, it's not an easy one to learn. That's, like, weird, and, like, that's really intense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I would like, I would love to become a Star Trek fan, but it feels so massive and I'm sure that the community is probably like welcoming, but it just, I, I don't even know where I would like begin to dive in. So I kind of stay away from it. Yeah. And, and like, I think that that's sort of, it goes to sort of my feeling about like, uh, like, yeah, like the, I feel like the fans own Star Trek more than like anyone else at this point. Um, it's just, it is like just so huge and daunting and like it's really knit together only by a fandom. And that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to Radio Motherboard. Thanks to Sarah Zhang, Sai, and Pua Lutish. God, I hope I got that right for joining me. Thanks to Mark Liambruni for editing us. Also, if you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends, rate us on iTunes, and please feel free to point out any Star Trek stuff I screwed up in either Klingon or English. Like the beginning, I'm going to let the lovely sounds of Il Troubadouri's Klingon Victory song play us out. I'm Jason Kebler. Live long and prosper. Did I do that right? Ba-da-tum-bo, <laughs>